0: How is everybody doing today? I'm, uh, I always tell my students that I'm a man that likes to get started on time, because the advantage of starting on time is what? You finish on time, All right? Uh, of course, to a large extent, that's theoretical. Um, I want to say a few words, and then uh, we'll uh, pray and read through the passage today. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Reams, a uh, member here at Grace Presbyterian Church. Uh, the study that we're doing today is a uh, continuation on our study of James, which is based on the book, Let's Study James by Sinclair Ferguson. And um, I feel like standing up here, I'm a bit hot uh, with, with the microphone, so I'll try not to get too excited because I, I don't want to any, cause any hearing problems. Uh, So the message of today's passage is expressing repentance, all right? Um, Not so much about repentance, but expressing repentance. So first I want to briefly touch on what is repentance. Uh, And I'm going to read a couple passages or a couple paragraphs uh, from our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith. So let's listen closely. Okay. All right, so regarding repentance. By it, a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God. Uh, And I think a key word there is turn, right? Uh, To turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with Him in all the ways of His commandments. And one more paragraph uh, from this chapter on repentance. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. And I find that that's, that that's helpful. Um, and, and I'll admit, in a way, this passage is kind of difficult to follow as it says a lot in a very short period of time. Uh, and frankly, some of the connections are not immediately intuitive. It may just be me, but I hear that's a common thing among uh, a lot of commentators with James as they note how he kind of... Uh, bounces around a little bit, so maybe, maybe it's because it forces us to pay closer attention. So I'm going to do my best to unpack this uh, today, but I want to encourage you to have your Bibles opened uh, to the passage that we're going to read, which is James 4, uh, 7 through 12, um, and hang on, uh, focus, and try to keep up. We'll, we'll do our best. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to pray, uh, and then we'll read through the passage together. So let's pray. Great and gracious Father of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, bless us this morning as we study your word that you chose to reveal to us. Please give us wisdom, clarity, and insight as we work with and maybe even struggle with uh, the passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're doing James 4, 7 through 12. I'm actually going to start in verse 6. Okay, starting in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. "'Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. "'Be wretched and mourn and weep. "'Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. "'Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. "'Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. "'The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother "'speaks evil against the law and judges the law. "'But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge.' There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So as I was studying through this book, uh, uh, studying James with Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he makes an interesting point, or he, he, he goes about it with an interesting angle. And I'm not going to go fully into this metaphor that he uses, but he, uses, he goes into this metaphor of, uh, of a medical diagnosis. All right, And so I want to begin by quoting Ferguson uh, when he says the following, and I quote, James is concerned about the spiritual health of his correspondence. He is a skilled spiritual physician, he examines the symptoms, he engages in a spiritual analysis, comes to a diagnosis, and then gives us his prescription and prognosis. How would you finish the following sentence? All spiritual ills stem ultimately from, from what? From bad seafood? Oh, somebody said sin. And there's several good, there's several good answers. Bad seafood isn't one of them, to be clear. Um, (laughs) Although it could lead you uh, to doing things you shouldn't. Uh, But what, uh, what Ferguson says is it comes from a wrong view of God or from a wrong response to God. That's why it's so important that we have a right view of God. And how do we do that? Through His revealed Word. We don't need to guess about God or come up with our own opinions of Him, right, based on our feelings or social pressure, right? If our view of God was based on what society wanted our view of God to be, it would change daily. Uh, And I think that we all know that. So it's so important for all of us here and for our families that we get this right. So what specifically in this passage is it that James is wanting us to get right about God? That he's a jealous God. Why is He a jealous God? Because of what He did for us. Think about this. He poured out His love for you and for me and the gift of His Son and sent His Spirit into your heart and into my heart. And let that sink in for a minute because this is not imagery. This is not metaphor. This is real. Understanding this, Ferguson says, will lead to a healthier Christian life. By the way, sometimes when we hear the word jealous uh, or we hear the word jealous God, uh, our minds kind of go to the wrong place or go the wrong direction. Um, When I'm jealous, it's not a good thing. When God's jealous, and remember, God is without sin. In Him there is no darkness at all. all. Right? When God's jealous, it means that He will not rest content and he'll, until he possesses all of us, our entire person, our entire calendar. He doesn't just want us on Sunday or when we happen to be in a Bible study or a Sunday school. He wants all of us every day, every minute, every second. And of course, God knows even smaller bits of time, right? He wants all of that, uh, especially when you're alone. Uh, one might say, uh, especially. When you're alone perhaps being tempted by the world or the flesh okay so why does he want to possess all of us because of his love for us and he knows the alternative and I think that we all do too so I want to step briefly uh, a few inches into the weeds I hear this is what the cool kids say right we're going to get into the weeds Uh, So I want to briefly step a few inches into the weeds before we move on. Verse 6, and again, I encourage you to have your Bibles open just to glance back down. Verse 6 begins with but, and then it says therefore, right? Uh, These are known as connecting words. Of course, the most uh, famous example of the connecting word is therefore from Paul's letters, right? Because we all know and we all have been taught that when we see a therefore, we're supposed to see what a therefore is therefore. So why are these here? Uh, But comes right after the words from verse 4, from 4 on. uh, And I'm going to read this where he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? So we are adulterous. We are adulterous if we wish to be a friend of the world. As a rhetorical question, nobody needs to rapidly raise your hand. Um, But have any of us ever slipped up and done that a time or two? Um, I would would say, at least from my own experience, probably every day. So that means we're doomed, right? No. Look at verse 6. But, but he gives more grace. And it continues to the next connecting word, therefore, therefore it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to whom? To the humble. So on one hand, we might think that it's a fearsome thing that God is jealous, um, and we may be tempted to shrink back, but don't. We are reminded here that no matter how deep our sin is, His grace is deeper still, and that's true. Okay, so I'm going to step out of the weeds and I'm going to move on. But now I'm going to do something else that I hear the cool kids do. I'm going to step down a rabbit trail, all right? So I'm going to go down a rabbit trail. Notice the way James refers to Scripture in verse 6, and you're welcome to take a look. When he says, it says. In the New Testament, it says, Scripture says, and God says are synonymous expressions. When James says this, therefore he clearly sees this as a declaration of truth. So James cites Scripture to say that God gives more grace. But he also makes the point that this grace does not allow us to be indifferent to our sin. As Ferguson says, and forgive the off and on of the old man glasses, as Ferguson says, the grace-giving God is also the pride-resisting God. You must resist pride. Remember James 1.17. Good, every good gift, every perfect gift is from where? From inside my awesome self? No, where is it from? It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's a good way to uh, get rid of a little bit of your pride when you realize that these gifts that you have, these good gifts and perfect gifts, are not something that you necessarily conjured up in yourself. These are things that were given to you, and they were given to you for a purpose, Right? We must have humility to be able to apply what we learn in the passage today. There is no room for pride here. Pride is so destructive. I'm in an industry where I see people ruin their lives all the time because of pride. People can ruin their lives over a great many things. But in, in my past, I've been in industries where pride is the number one killer. It ruins careers. It's destructive. It's destructive to you. It's destructive to your relationships. It's destructive at your place of employment. It's destructive to your walk with Christ. It destroys everything. Forgive the analogy here. I think I can say this because we're Presbyterian. But forgive the analogy here. One thing that all intoxicated people have in common not to say that we get intoxicated, right? But wine does make the heart glad. Um, but if you have too much, one thing that all intoxicated people have in common, they're convinced that no one notices, all right? And I'm sure, I'm sure we have uh, folks here in law enforcement, you'll, you can vouch for that, right? Intoxicated people think that nobody notices. Likewise, one thing that all prideful people have in common, they think nobody notices, Right, um, but they do. People aren't noticing how great and wonderful you are. They're noticing how great and wonderful you think you are. All right, I think the Bible refers to this as being puffed up. So let that never be something that sticks any of it, uh, to any of us in here. Uh, quickly, I want to read through three verses regarding this, Pro- and, and, and don't worry about flipping to it. But if you're taking notes, jot these down. Proverbs three thirty four reads. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Peter in 1 Peter 5.5 quotes that verse from Proverbs. Then the next verse he says, and I'm reading 1 Peter 5.6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, at the proper time he may exalt you. You may not feel exalted now, right? But this is in God's timing. At the proper time he may exalt you. Then we see here in James 4.10, Uh, in front of you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So my question to you is this. Is all of this true? Or is all of this untrue? Or is it somewhere in between? Sometimes we think that a lot of this is somewhere in between depending on who we are or the unique situation we're in. We We may not come right out and say that, but many of us are prone to to live as if we do, right? Um, okay, so we've, we've briefly been in the weeds and down a rabbit trail. That was fun. In the weeds, we learned that from the use of the connecting words, but and therefore, that we're a mess, but God gives grace. And down the rabbit trail, we learned that pride is bad. And it's also the natu- the natural inclination of a sinful heart. So we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Now back to our main path. Remember, Sinclair Ferguson refers to James as a skilled spiritual physician. What is his diagnosis? Sin, of which pride is a symptom. In our sin, we have exalted self over God and acted as though we know better than he does. None of us in here would say that, I hope, but for all of us, our actions will often show it, won't it? What is his prescription? repentance. But wait, you might say, "Ho ho, I repented 30 years ago when I became a Christian. Ferguson deals with this, and, I, and I'm, I'll read from his book. Uh, but Ferguson says, and I quote, Contrary to what is sometimes assumed, repentance is not a momentary act that takes place once for all at the beginning of the Christian life. True, it has a beginning, but it is a lifelong process. Luther... This is a good time of year to do this, isn't it, guys? Luther, in the very first of his 95 theses, wrote, and I quote, When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Calvin expressed this thought in the title of chapter, I think it was chapter chapter 3 of book 3 in his Institutes, and the title is, Our Regeneration by Faith, now listen closely, Our regeneration by faith, colon, repentance. So someone might hear that and say, whoa, that's not very Calvin-like. But Calvin correctly understood, and he subsequently fleshed out, that faith and repentance are there at the beginning of regeneration, but continues throughout our lives until we see Christ face to face. But finally, and this is a rhetorical question, again, I hope, um, can you repent without humility? No. To continue with the physician metaphor, this medicine is hard to take because it involves swallowing far worse than a big horse pill. I'm sure we've all had to do that at some point. It involves swallowing our pride. And we have to do that each and every day, don't we? So how hard is that? How hard is that to actually resist that pride, to swallow that pride? Think of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Think of um, uh, David with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. We are essentially being asked to do something. We're being asked to do precisely the very thing that Adam, Eve, and David initially failed to do. May God help us to do so. But next, let's speak briefly of three ways we can take or apply this medical advice that we've been given. And these are three things that uh, Ferguson gives to us in the book and I would like to kind of expand on that. Uh, But real quickly, uh, the three things. First, submitting to God and resisting the devil. Second, draw near, cleanse, and purify. And three, being wretched, mourning, and weeping. Yes, I'm saving the best for last. Um, All right, so first, submitting to God and resisting the devil. Let's read verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what might might that look like to us in here? Submit yourselves to God. What are some ways that we do that? We read His Word. We pray. We're in church. These are musts. So here you get, if you think about this, you get two for the price of one. Because when you draw near to God, the devil will flee. You can only do neither. Think about this. You can only do neither or you can do both, not just one, right? Is the devil going to flee me because he's scared of me? No, because he's going to flee from Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. What's one of the tools that the devil most likes to use? And, And I know we've all seen this. Heaven knows I have. One of the uh, tools that the uh, devil most likes to use because it's very effective is lies and deceptions. Stay in the word. Stay in the truth. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to what? To know the real thing. Uh, I remember uh, uh, counselor, Fowler, one of the earliest things I learned from him was, well, I won't repeat that thing, but after that... <laughs> But after that, one of the earliest things that I learned from him was um, bankers. When they're training bankers to spot counterfeit money, counterfeit bills, do they show them all kinds of, ooh, here's examples of what a counterfeit bill may look like, or it may look like this, it may look like this, right? There's so many of them. No, they actually have them study the real thing. And they study the real thing so closely and so faithfully that when a counterfeit crosses their desk, they immediately see that. Have you ever been to a church or have you ever been to a Bible study where you heard somebody say something but something just quite didn't seem right? right? There's a reason for that. Um, so I encourage you to stay in the Word. I want to think also for a minute about the serpent. What did the serpent actually do in the garden? He brought into question or I want to actually say he assaulted. He assaulted the following three things about God. He assaulted the reliability of God's Word. He assaulted the authority of God's Word. And he assaulted the graciousness of God's Word. People do that today, don't they? All right. First, the reliability of God's Word. Did God really say? Come on. Did He really say? Second, the authority of God's Word. You will not surely die. Right? Is that what God said? No. But Satan comes in and says, you will not surely die. I had a difficult situation once um, with an employee uh, that had gotten into some trouble. Um, and then in the process of trying to deal with this this, uh, uh, this, this fellow accused me of lying. And he used the fact that somebody else had said something different to him than what I had said. So I had to point out to him, here's the situation, and you've got a bit of a problem. You've got two different people telling you two different things. One of us is lying to you, and you, you need to figure out who that is. There's this old saying um, used in literature and other places that intent precedes content. So without going into details of the content, I will say I had no intent or, or motive To lie, quite the opposite. Now, the other person did have intent or motive to lie. All right, so think of that here. Think of that here. What was the intent of God uh, telling Adam and Eve that they would surely die? God is a God of truth. Now, what was the intent of the serpent telling them that they would not surely die? Who did they end up believing, by the way? Now, oops. Oops. Um, Okay, and thirdly, he attacked the graciousness of God's Word. Um, He actually led off with this question. And listen carefully. Listen carefully. This is what Satan asked. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What did God actually say? Did He say any tree in the garden? He pointed out one, right? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's a trick, by the way, that con artists and manipulators use to ask a question with a false premise where you're slowly trying to take a, a mark to a point. This, this is the serpent. And this is crafty, right? I don't want anybody to ever call me crafty unless I'm doing a craft project. This is crafty and deceptive. Not surprising coming from the father of lies, right? By the way, remember James had to tell his readers in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, I believe, do not be deceived. We and Eve know God did not say that, but the serpent asked it. Why? It's deeply cynical speech coming from the serpent. And as we unfortunately know, cynicism spreads worse than any virus does. And very often is a lot more destructive. So why did, he, why did Adam and Eve fall? They were deceived. James 1.16 Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. They mistrusted God, the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And at the end of the day, they knowingly rebelled against His authority. How often are we deceived? How often are we disobedient? We must submit, therefore, to God. We must confess and go on confessing our sin. We must reject the lies about Him, and we must resist the devil, and He will flee from us. What's a good way to do this? That takes us to our next point. I'm going to start quicker, uh, partially because uh, I'm running out of time, and I had a lot of coffee that's just now kicking in. Verse 8, let's read along together. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And you remember from before what double-minded means. Um, and by the way I just want to make this point Uh, people will misunderstand this draw near to God and he will draw near to you all right Um, God always initiates salvation don't forget that all right so when we hear when we see words like this don't be don't be led to thinking other things we know that God always initiates salvation that's one of the most clear things that we see throughout the Bible so we hear this language, but may not always know exactly what it means, why it means, and what we're supposed to do with it. Ferguson, in our book, does a good job explaining it. Um, so I want to do this. I want to look quickly at the two commands. Draw near, and then cleanse and purify. By the way, as I poured through a lot of commentators uh, on this specific part, many commentators gloss over this, or they just skip it all together, uh, which is interesting, so I want to be very careful Uh, and I want to be very brief but we can say what we do know right Uh, we do have the Bible our only rule of faith and practice draw near is language associated with coming into the temple to worship that one's pretty easy cleanse and purify were essentially prerequisites for doing this in the mosaic sacrificial system and these are also terms used for ritual purity um, and sometimes ethnic purity too but used for ritual purity such as the priest at the Bronze Basin in Exodus 30.18. So the Levitical laws with all the liturgical regulations were only pictures of the truth and are now obsolete. But there are a few conclusions that this fact should not take us to. This does not mean that God changes without variation or shadow due to change. He is eternal and He is eternally holy. It also does not mean that we no longer have to worry about the meaning of coming near with clean hands and a pure heart. We still need to draw near to God, and we are only cleansed and purified through Christ. A couple of verses that might help. Listen closely. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One more verse Working, we were working on this right up to the end. I we had I had these uh, drawn up today in the car, our hour drive down. Psalm 24:3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Handwriting while in in the car is bad. Uh, He he who has clean hands, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Um, And Matthew Henry had a short uh, sentence about this. We can only be cleansed from our sins and renewed unto holiness by the blood of Christ and the washing of the Holy Ghost. Uh, if if, If only someone with clean hands and a pure heart could ascend the hill of the Lord in the days of the Old Covenant, the same must be true in the days of the New Covenant. So although we know this is verbiage from the Old Covenant, the same is true in the New Covenant. One might say, and I do, uh, that on this side of the cross um, and with the now clear and full revelation of God in Christ, we have a greater obligation to think on these things. So that's what it means and why it means it. So now what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for you in practical terms? This takes us to the next point, being wretched, mourning, and weeping. Verses 9 and 10, let's read it together quickly. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Remember what James said about us already. We are sinners. We're a mess. We're double-minded. Before we think that verses 8 and 9 are a big downer, consider the mess we're in as sinners. It's not rational to assume that gumdrops and lollipops will cleanse and purify us, is it? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Stop laughing and mourn. Turn your joy to gloom. Ferguson says that Dr. James, and this is what he calls him, Dr. James is equating this to a spiritual emetic. Don't say it, but raise your hand if you know that word. E-M-E-T-I-C, emetic. All right? So I had to uh, I had to look that up. All right? I will confess in humility I had to look that up. Um, so emetic is... Um, is, uh, is meant to induce vomiting, or it's a substance meant to induce vomiting. That's very unpleasant, but the purpose of the emetic is to hopefully bring you back to health. Likewise, the purpose of the spiritual emetic um, is to lead us to Christ and to discover the superabundant grace given to us uh, in Him. So it does create a bit of a paradox. We have joy, the joy of forgiveness, And the greater our awareness of our unworthiness, the greater our joy is. Paul paints this perfectly in Romans 7, and I read, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul had joy because he knew the answer. Have you ever been tempted to wonder why unbelievers are so often seen living it up in their sin and seemingly so full of laughter and joy? I think we all know the remedy to that. Uh, But Ferguson says this, which is helpful, and uh, follow along closely, and I quote, At the beginning of the Christian life, our false laughter was turned into mourning, our false joy to gloom. Once this happens for us, we can take comfort in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Very often... By the way, James, as I mentioned earlier, seems to kind of lurch back and forth to and fro uh, from, from top, one topic to another. But remember, though, it's the spirit doing this, right? This is the spirit doing this through James. This is God's word. This is one of the things about this book, by the way, which is so good for us, I think. It kind of forces us to connect the dots uh, that may not be obvious at first, but they're there. And what fun, uh, what fun when you're able to find these connections and connect the dots. All of that to say, let's look at the last two verses for today. Last two verses for today. Uh, Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So by the way, the law, uh, based on uh, what I've read, the law likely refers to the Old Testament laws against slander, a couple verses to that end. Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge Against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. And you might remember, um, by the way, that James refers to this as the royal law in chapter two, verses eight. He says, "If you are really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. You are doing well." Also, regarding judging, and this is always important to point out. This is referring to those who inappropriately judge. I don't have time to read these, but Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Romans 2, 1, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, they can be helpful. Think of it it this way. Our judgments should be founded on the Word of God. An inappropriate judgment is a judgment that is contrary to the Word, right? This should be a good check for us if someone, and I know this has probably happened to all of us, it has happened to me, this is a good check for us if someone throws the accusation that we are just being judgmental. And it's important that we grasp this concept because the world will attempt to use this and similar passages to force us to celebrate all worldviews and all behaviors. That's not a good thing, so we've got to be ready. So how do these last two verses fit in? to everything that came before it. And I'll t- I'll attempt to make this link. The first thing that I'll note is that in Psalms, David links a lack of humility to slander. Psalm 101.5, Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him will I put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Repentance begins to p- produce good fruit where there was formerly bad fruit. Slander is not good fruit. Earlier, James spoke about being slow to anger, chapter 1, verse 19. Abuse of the tongue, chapter 3, verse 6. Quarrels, chapter 4, verse 1. Grace to the humble, chapter, chapter 4, verse 6. So here he spells it out. Do not speak evil against one another. Remember, we have... and Wow, this is convicting when I came across this in, in one of my books. Remember, we have the same Father, the same Savior, and the same indwelling Spirit. So to speak ill of each other would be utterly contrary to nature. Or I might might say it this way, utterly contrary to our renewed nature that we share in Christ. Slander in the church will eventually destroy the church. The devil will be very proud of you and he'll he'll be very thankful for you you will do the very thing the devil wants. And congratulations, you will be held accountable. All right. So this is something that we all have to be careful of. Oh, but I might say, you don't understand. I've got this super unique situation. Or you, you, you don't know that super mean person that, and what he did to me. Rubbish. God might look at us and say like Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, who do you think you are you're the judged not the judge so these are all hard words but they are meant to be aren't they I've often said that if you read through the Bible consistently and you never feel convicted you're doing it wrong some things from this passage really stuck with me and I hope they will for all of us and by way of review I just want to go through this very quickly Because of His love for us and what He did and gave for us, God is jealous and wants our whole selves. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So take heart. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Run to Christ. Grieve over sin. We must humble ourselves and do not speak evil against your brothers. So once we remember who we are, or as I heard somebody once say, whose we are, then we will thank God that in Jesus Christ He gives more grace. And that grace is our greatest need. Amen? And if you don't know this grace, if you don't know this grace, remember this. For the believer, joy is central and sadness is peripheral. For the unbeliever, Sadness and hopelessness are central and joy is peripheral. For the believer, joy is eternal. For the unbeliever, it's not. As a body of believers, we need to hear this. Uh, But I want to end with this because we can ultimately say these words with Isaiah. And I quote, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Amen and amen. Let's pray. O Lord, You are good. You are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And from You comes wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. By Your Spirit, we ask You will empower us through Your Word to know You better and to worship You rightly. Bless us as we move into the next portion of this morning where we get to worship You. Help us to worship You well in spirit and truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.